Hi, and welcome to the Design Systems Podcast. This podcast is about the place where design and development overlap. We talk with experts to get their point of view about trends in design, code, and how it relates to the world around us. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Knapsack. Check us out at knapsack.cloud. If you want to get in touch with the show, ask some questions, or generally tell us what you think, go ahead and tweet us at the DSPod. We'd love to hear from you. We are in a crazy time in this country with coronavirus, with uh, a lot of unrest going on right now, and things are a little bit wild still. So bear with us on this recording. You know, we want to try to be sensitive to to what's going on right now. And so we're going to release this when it's appropriate. But I just want to acknowledge that things are a little crazy, and I hope everybody's doing okay out there. Today, we're with Gina Ann. Uh, she's been doing design systems for over 15 years at companies like Salesforce, Apple, and Amazon. She's been very focused recently on the design systems community and building up just an incredible group of people that are super supportive of each other, supportive of design systems inside of enterprise and all over the world. Um, really happy to have you on today, Gina. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. So just kind of diving right into it, um, you know, you've spent a lot of time breaking ground, for lack of a better word, in in this community and in this space working at big organizations like Salesforce and Amazon, like two pioneering groups in the design system space, both, uh, you know, creators of, of really interesting design token systems like like Theo and Style Dictionary and, and those sorts of things. You know, what was that like to be kind of an, an early pioneer in this space? And, and what were the, the things that were going through your head when you were, were sort of fashioning the early foundations of a lot of this work? <laughs> Thanks for asking. To be honest, like at that time, I didn't really see anything as being pioneering. You know, you're just kind of in the moment. But I, I was part of the inception of Theo as well as, you know, the concept of design tokens. And really, it just came down to a necessity that we needed. And it just made sense. At Salesforce, we had to scale across not just, you know, a, a web-based product, but we had to scale across multiple code bases. Some companies and acquisitions that we were dealing with were on Java, some were on PHP, some were on Ruby, some were on you know .NET. Like they they were all over the place. And of course, React, Angular, um, and of course, there's native platforms as mm-hmm. well. And so we had to come up with something that would allow us to scale across all these things. So it just seemed to make sense, and it was a very you know, even the the phrase design tokens was a very Salesforce centric thing based on the technology that we had. I, I didn't think that the whole community would start putting design tokens in their own design <laughs> systems. So that was that was pretty cool to see. But um, at the time, yeah, it was just doing what we needed to do to get things done. <laughs> No, I think that that's how any any great broader concept starts, right? Is you get this idea of how am I experiencing this this acute pain, right? Like I have all these different technology stacks, I have all these different systems, all these different applications that I need something to unify. So how do I solve that problem in a really practical sense that has to to not just go, um, you know, deep into one app but wide across a whole bunch of them? Yeah, exactly. So I, I am curious. Uh, who came up with the name design tokens? Because I think that this was this is something that I, I I like occasionally like chuckle at a little bit in the back of my mind when I'm I'm explaining like what design tokens are to somebody that is is you know new to the design systems world, and they always say like why why do people call them that like why did you guys call them that I am really curious about this. So let me give you the backstory because <laughs> it, it is really funny to read some of the commentary. Um, by the way, that's my cat in the background. She <laughs> she wants me to pick her up. 
Um, but yeah, so if you've ever had to localize content for your application, you will often wrap your content in what is known as a token. It's like a string that you pass data through. And then that way you can just swap out, you know, English with Japanese or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it's that same kind of, um, that same concept. Um, Salesforce at the time was using the precursor to what is now known as, as the Lightning Platform, it was called Aura. And they, they weren't using anything like SAS or LESS or Stylus. So they had basically built their own way of processing CSS in their, um, their component um, platform. And it was using token strings, basically. And so they mm -hmm. would pass in using XML data different CSS values. And they were doing sort of, in a way, it was almost like you take like some of the concepts of SAS and some of the concepts of web components, but in, in the very Salesforce way of doing it. I'm going to pick up my cat so she stops me out. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Yeah, she's 18, so she's been a little needy and, and crabby lately. But um, yeah, so that was the the technology that we were using. Um, they called them tokens, and you know it's the same concept and localization, like I said. So we called them design tokens because I mean we were basically passing our design language through the same same concept, the same tech. Um, we didn't have. SAS being in use on the product side, but we were using it on the design team because we needed mm -hmm. to prototype. And of course there was our style guide website. And so we on the design team were using SAS. So it kind of worked out because then we could create a system that would give us the SAS variables we needed, but also work for the platform that they use, which is why when you, if you use Theo, which was the open source design tokens um, kind of like a distribution tool that we had created, you'll see that there's a lightning format in there. And some people might be like, what the heck is this? Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, it, it was the Salesforce centric thing. And then we also had some teams using stylus, some teams using less, uh, of course, Android, iOS, and so on. And so that's... So all that transformation was kind of like the the baking for this whole system of how you basically share rules uh, that come from design. Yeah, and we we kind of just accidentally discovered a really great way to have, you know, to use the cliche, single source of truth. But before, like if, let's say there was a color we were using for text and it didn't contrast high enough against a background color, it used to take us a long time to like notify the Android devs and notify the iOS devs and notify the Aura devs and like all the other product teams where now, because we had built that infrastructure in place, like we just make the change and then they would get that change in the next time that they, they do a build. Um, and then we didn't even really think about it at the time, but we realized it also opened up so many possibilities for theming and customization mm -hmm. and branding and like all that stuff. So um, we kind of just realized like this, this is it. This is this is what we're doing. and. I, I will say, you know, this is pre-Lightning Design System, but because we had set this all up, it made when we were ready to build out the Lightning Design System so much easier because that infrastructure was in place. Yeah, and it's it's honestly the foundational infrastructure for a lot of the value of design systems. I kind of find when we're talking to customers about how to implement design systems 
in that kind of crawl, walk, run sort of approach, the crawl is kind of recognizing that you have a, a need for a design system and, and, you know, getting that all spun up and, and all that sort of thing. But like when we talk about walking, like the first thing that we always talk about is how you get design tokens up and running because the cross-platform nature of it is really powerful, especially as it relates to adoption, you know, getting it so that every Android team and iOS team and app team that is, is a web app, like all using the same set of values, regardless of, you know, what sort of templating language you're using or what sort of platform you're on. Like that is, is a truly like pervasively adoptable system. And I think that that's kind of the, the brilliance of defining these kind of basic bits and, and these pairs of values that dictate the, the rules for how the system should be interpreted. When you think about kind of some of those, those early decisions around um, Theo and around design tokens, around Lightning, you know, when you had to deal with all these different cross-platform apps and all of these kind of different environments, you know, how did you, how did you create some sort of systematic approach to that? Because when I think about this, like, I look at this really daunting task of, of I'm going to go create Lightning, right? And I'm going to go create Lightning and it's going to go support not just a, a community of apps inside of Salesforce, but a community of, of applications within a partner ecosystem, within a consumer ecosystem. Like the, the scope of it, the scope of the problem space is really grand. And I mean, I'm sure that like this wasn't all tackled at once, but like, what was the systematic approach you took for that? And like, is what Lightning became really the execution of a vision or did that kind of evolve along the way too? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest things that helped us, which, um, you know, this is back in like, I think like 2014 was when I um, switched from a different product at Salesforce to joining the core team. I had never heard of any company having a dedicated design systems team before, but Salesforce had decided that that's what we needed. And so I think just the fact that that decision was made was a huge catalyst for it because we, that was our, that was our gig. That was our time, you know, spent was working on this stuff. So there was an initiative called Salesforce One, which was basically when they decided to unify all their different, you know, features and experiences under one um, app. And it was a mobile app called Salesforce One. And they modernized the design. And I, I think they don't actually like when we, we say modernize, but that's the reality of what we were doing because mm-hmm. the classic UI wasn't really suited for mobile. So we had to kind of modernize things. So that was like a redesign effort. And redesigns, I think, are always going to help like kind of push, you know, these type of movements forward. So we already had a style guide in place for that. And it was beautiful. It's actually what really drew me to um, join this team and to um, become a part of it. It's actually really incredible when you think about what that style guide really represents, right? Because when we think about the notion of consumerization of enterprise, right? Like you think about how the iPhone existed and and like some of the, the more modern Android devices existed. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's enterprise app had a new standard that it had to meet, which was what every single consumer carried around in their pocket. Like that app experience, that all of a sudden, like the old like classic UI um, of Salesforce was no longer going to cut it in terms of of what consumers were really demanding in terms of these new UIs. And I think it's kind of the poster child for successfully making that leap into a place where you had this old enterprise app that was basically like a bunch of tables and forms and buttons 
that now is all of a sudden like this much richer experience. Yeah, so that, you know, was pretty successful. And then we realized, okay, now we need to do this for the desktop UI. And that was treated as a new initiative, not really as an add-on to the previous one. And the code name at the time, we were calling it was Solaris. And it was basically this idea that everything would look very modern and clean. And a lot of what you see in Lightning now came from mm -hmm. that Solaris design. But Solaris, as you can see a lot in enterprise design, got toned down to be more safe. So a lot of the bright colors just became like the blue and the gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can't get too crazy now. Yeah. But that redesign initiative was you know, exploring how can we modernize more of the, the UI, but still nod to the work that we've already done in Salesforce One. That kind of just evolved into beyond like, oh, we need to redesign things, but also like we need a system in place. And so that was a weird transition time for my team where we we basically kind of split off and then re rejoined and like certain people left the team, certain people joined the team. So there was a lot of transition. But what the team ended up becoming was what was the Lightning Design System team before we had quite landed on that name, which was essentially a strong CSS architect, two hybrid designer developer people, and a very strong visual designer, which I thought mm -hmm. makes up a really amazing team because we were churning out basically what was the prototype for what would become Lightning Design System. And that was, that was your guys' objective on that team was basically to say like, what is this unified design for the desktop application that is heavily inspired by Salesforce One, but is ultimately able to be sort of pervasive across most of the Salesforce ecosystem? I guess, was it ecosystem-wide at that point, or was it just still thinking about a, a more specific app? We we knew it would need to address the, the broader ecosystem, but at the time, we were very focused on our flagship product, which was Sales Cloud. We also, our, our goals at the time, based on... Um, let me backtrack a little bit. I talked to a ton of engineers and told them the vision, like, this is what we want to do. And some of the responses were, well, why don't we just use Bootstrap? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, <laughs> this sounds great, but it's going to be like two years out before we even adopt just the button. You know, so mm -hmm. when we we're hearing things like that, we were like, okay, well, let's just do this. We'll just go ahead and work on it for us so that we can move forward with our prototypes and our style guide. And then there's the third-party ecosystem. We can provide these resources for them because they want their apps to live and look like they live in Salesforce because they look and feel like Salesforce. And then at some point, we'll address the production engineers for the actual product. So that's what we thought was going to happen until, you know, that whole show don't tell thing people always say, like you yeah, tell yep. something to somebody, they're like, eh, maybe I don't quite see it. But once you actually show them, then they want it. Mm -hmm. um, so we had the prototype out, which was, you know, I just did a very plain, simple version of the website that you see now for the Lightning Design System with the components and the documentation and all that. People saw it and they started copy and pasting our code to put it in the product. We were like, <laughs> wait, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> this is not what we intended. So we had to flip that around and now like go all in on supporting the production team. So it was like, a mixture of planning as well as just like a happy accident and that it got more successful quicker than we thought it would. <laughs> it's like I see you as like like a, a Bob Ross wig on, like making this 
this like happy little accident that just happens to to become this really powerful design system. I had a funny metaphor I used to use too, which might sound negative, but it's not really meant to be negative. But um, the way I like to refer to it is like if you watch Game of Thrones, um, <clears throat> and this shouldn't be a spoiler. People know there are dragons in Game of Thrones, but you know. Khaleesi starts off with these little eggs and everybody's kind of excited about the eggs because they're just like, wait, that that's new. Like, where did these eggs come from? And then at some point they hatch into the little dragons and everybody's like, oh, wow, cool. So she's got dragons. And then they grow up into these really massive things that just start burning everything down. <laughs> so I, I used to joke around about how like we had accidentally built a dragon that just blew up really fast and really quick and we needed to find a way to rein it in. And, and so like, how did you guys even tackle that problem? Because like, I can imagine we spent a, a fair amount of time like uh, uh, gently uh, ribbing both sides of, of the ecosystem maybe a little bit more disproportionately on designs. So like, let me poke fun at developers real quick. Like, one of the things that has always kind of fascinated about me about developers is like, nothing is ever going to work if you talk to them about it. And then, you know, if you get them to, to estimate like, you know, how much work they can get done inside of a sprint or something like that. And it's always like three times higher than what they can actually get done. And so it's always this, this funny like push-pull between optimism and pessimism there. And when you give a developer something that becomes like the path of least resistance for them, it's like ambrosia, right? They, they can't get enough of it. And so I could totally imagine this ecosystem just taking off like wildfire across like a system that is thousands of developers. And so what, what did those inflection points look like and how did you, how did you manage your way through them? Uh, so we, we definitely had to grow our team big time. Um, I think at one, t- I'm trying to remember what the largest number was at one time. You know, and we also became a, a team of teams, where we mm. had like some people focus on the distribution and tooling and automation. Some people focus on writing the components. Some people focus on the design of it. Like we had to kind of like as- like assemble multiple teams together because the the need just kind of grew much faster than we expected. Yeah, the, the Voltron approach to design systems. Yeah, and like the, the coolest thing I thought was when we brought the accessibility team under our umbrella because it used to be a checkpoint at the end and then that was always stressful because it's like if you didn't make it right before we shipped, then you had to wait until the next release where now because they were on the design system team, things got to go in much quicker. And so having a more well-rounded um, range of skills and expertise was really valuable for us. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest things that we realized, and this was about the time that Nathan Curtis started pushing the idea of design systems being a product. And you know, some people would say it's more like a service, but regardless if you think it's a product or service, both of those require mm-hmm. customer service. And we realized that that was a huge part of what we needed to do. And so we did advisory boards. Initially, we did office hours, and then we evolved that to advisory boards. And the reason that we did that was if I'm just doing a one-on-one with you, mm-hmm. um, there's other people on my team that don't know what we discussed. And so if we do it more as an advisory board thing, then we're all in the room, and we all know what we discuss, and it's just a little bit better for the team as well as for the organization. And we would track who was coming to the advisory boards, what topics we were discussing, you know, and it could be anything from like talking with the PM and the designer on what's possible or at legal even like 
or like following our policies and you know that could be around accessibility or safety and trust and like all that stuff or it could be an engineer just needs some css help <laughs> so totally yeah um and i think that was like a really huge thing that helped us out and um we also had a standards review that we did closer to launch time of like double checking that everything is is up to up to snuff and uh you know and sometimes you would see people show something you've never seen before and you're like how come you haven't been coming to the advisory boards this is right, new totally. you, have, you have something to contribute yeah, it's it's interesting it reminds me a lot of of thinking about some of the open source uh communities i've been a part of right where you have things like user groups and working groups and collections of people that are are topically focused but also intending to try to make this broad impact across these systems. Um, I was at one point really involved in the Drupal, the, the Drupal community. And you kind of talking about what you, you did there reminds me a lot of the types of, of organizations we used to try to set up um, within large enterprise that was, was adopting, you know, a new CMS platform was, you know, how you create this community understanding of what this means to everybody and how you sort of surface those contributions and, and get them into um, you know, the core product, like that's a really cool way of thinking about, you know, how this scales inside of an organization from, from a very human perspective. Um, would you say that's, that's where you maybe got your passion for some of this community stuff you're working on now? Um, I think I always had a passion for the community anyway, but it, it probably contributed to it because, you know, prior to going all in on design systems community stuff. I was a big part of the SaaS community and I'm mm -hmm. still on the, the SaaS core team. And I think a lot of people that were doing SaaS um, for their CSS were already kind of design systems minded, which most of the people had the same goals, like wanting consistency and easy maintainability of code and like all that stuff. And so a lot of the the desires are the same. <laughs> right, totally. So I, I feel like I just kind of like realized that it's not just the CSS part, but it's like all these other parts that I've been working on all these years. I like all of this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that is, I, I'm glad you bring this up because that is something I like to tell people is that, you know, if you're starting a, a design systems effort in your organization, you are building a community and there's a lot that comes with that you know, around communication and language and standards, but also like empathy and understanding and collaboration. Like there's just so much there. Absolutely. And I think that even when we say design systems are a product, that's still sometimes a challenge conversation inside of organizations, right? And so, you know, that's that's like the the starting point, right? I feel like once people have an understanding of that, then you start to bring up this idea of like, okay, and so for this product to be successful and for this product to be widely adopted, you have to evangelize it, you have to do research, you have to understand who your real consumers are, and you have to treat it almost like this tiny startup organization inside of your, your bigger enterprise where you know, your goal and your objective is to bring people on board because nobody is going to be forced to use your system. Like that's that's not a, a likely outcome. I mean, sometimes that happens, but it's I would say inc exceedingly rare. Um, in which case, it's all about building this this following, and really, like you said, having a lot of empathy for people and having a lot of understanding as users of your product 
that may not be the way that the company traditionally thinks about users, you have a lot of work to do around understanding their needs and making sure you're building the right thing for them. This is a big reason why I I don't like using the word governance in the con- context of design systems because I think it does kind of like give this perception of this like, I have to use your system because you told me to. What I prefer to see is this more like sharing approach where everybody's a shared owner, everybody you know, has contributed in some way to it and are all champions of the system, even though you might be a full-time maintainer on it and the person you're working with might just be most mostly a consumer of it. Um, you still want to like give them a voice and give them the empowerment to like have a say in what goes in that system. And then you all become like shared owners of it. Cause really at the end of the day, we're building the same product for the same people that are using totally. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I tend to be really not surprising given kind of some of my background stuff, but I, I tend to be really like all about the contribution side of it too. Right. The product teams that end up consuming that design system and, and then ultimately, you know, are putting that, that end product in front of users. Like they're the ones that are closest to, to that, end end goal, right? Like design systems always operate at this, this meta level, which I think is challenging because, you know, you almost have like two sets of users. You have, you have your people that are consuming your design system. And then you have like the people that that experience like ultimately serves, which is, you know, maybe another business, maybe, you know, just a a normal person walking down the street. And so thinking about how you still build those experiences for that lowest or like, I, I guess, last user in that chain while still considering everybody in in the interim is a, I think a product challenge that doesn't exist in very many places. And having that contribution from those product teams that are ultimately consuming your design system matters because they're the ones that are closest to those, those like last users in that chain. Yeah, absolutely. If you're familiar with Nathan Curtis's concept of team models, where he talks about the centralized team and the federated contributors, and he he kind of talks about them as two separate models. Um, mm-hmm. And he also talks about a solitary model. But um, at Salesforce, we were kind of a merging of that federated contributors and a centralized team. And I think if you have the scale to be able to have both, like in my eyes, that's an ideal situation because you have the, you know, I almost saw our team as more of like where we were um, facilitating and almost like librarians of, of it in a way. But the people that are working on the product, they're the ones that, like you said, like are closer to the users. Like they know more of the problem space a little bit better. I mean, you should know it too yep. as a systems designer, but they're going to be closer to it. And so you want them to be a contributor and to be a part of it. Yeah, they're going to understand all that nuance. And and at a meta level, especially designing for not just one product, but dozens or hundreds or maybe even thousands of products, like you can't be close to every user. Like it's an, it's sort of an intractable problem. That that Like that second ripple in the design system is very hard to see and you should be aware that it exists and you should know that it's there but really seeing over that first ripple is is really challenging um, just because of, of a function of scale and, and it's interesting too because i think this is where a lot of, of fragmentation begins to exist right because if all of a sudden you know product team xyz is not really feeling like what they're getting from the design system is serving their user base they're not apt to use it or they're apt to to create their own did you guys ever face that at salesforce where you had like you know, lightning and then like thunder or clap that were like, you know, competing design systems that existed inside of the organization? Um, Yeah. Uh, So I think this has happened at 
almost everywhere I've been, but Lightning was getting a lot of traction so that we were able to move beyond just focusing on our flagship product, but now scale it to our other products. And for the most part, that went pretty seamlessly because the design organization was almost as its own unit and then scaled across all these different products. But then, you know, we had a ton of like acquisitions that were kind of newer to the organization. And some of those companies already had a way of doing things. And there was one team in particular that was building their own system that they would have their own third party ecosystem of customers and, you know, other implementation builders um, use. So what they had done was basically forked Lightning and then reskinned it. And <laughs> they, you know, whatever name that they were using before, which I forget right now, they just called it the that design system. And we were like, hold on, no. <laughs> this, it doesn't, it's like, it doesn't really work that way. And obviously, but we, we recognized, we didn't want to just shut them out. But we recognized they had a lot of time and energy and we were like, these are clearly contributors that need to be a part of what we're doing. And so rather than just saying, no, you can't do this and shutting them down, we were like, look, you're building a React library and a Angular library and a, you know, I forget all the other implementations they were building, which is stuff that we haven't been able to focus on because we're focusing on the core agnostic part of it. So help mm -hmm. us build those implementations so that, you know, we can make it more official. Like it's all part of the same effort. And that was a much better approach for sure. No, absolutely. And I think it's interesting too, because, you know, you were talking about bootstrap a little bit earlier, right? Like I've had so many people just say back to me, so, so is this like your own custom bootstrap? And the answer is like, yeah, kind of in a way you can you can think about it like that. But, you know, that implies that you're taking this design system and then you're kind of building your own fork of it that is used in your own individual product. And I, I try to caution people that, you know, that's not really what this is about. Like, sure, you can do that. And that is an approach. But it's not one of those ones that is really contributing back to this broader um, you know, concept that can be reused over and over again across products. We have this tendency to talk about design systems as being really valuable to a product, but I've always thought about the value of a design system really being like, you know, how you share things between products, because traditionally so much of innovation has been locked in these, these stove bikes of product teams, right? Product team A, product team B, product team C, product team, product team C does something really innovative. It's very hard for that innovation to flow back into A and B. And so design systems are kind of this enabling force for taking all this innovation that happens at this, this product level and then sharing it across this broader product ecosystem. And to me, that's the, the like the true like essence of the value of a design system. It's it's not the component library, it's not the documentation. To some degree, it's like the cross-functional collaboration. But what all of that is enabling is this sharing of innovation between products. I was a big fan of the talk I saw recently at Design Systems London by the folks at Spotify, because you know they they're not just dealing with the Spotify app that you would see on your phone or on your desktop. Um, app, but like cars or, you know, like there's other Your things and those are not going to be using the same component library, obviously. And so rather than thinking of it as like, you know, one library to rule them all, it was more like, well, here's the Spotify design language. I think they called it Encore and um, how that could then become a system of systems that 
have their own way of doing things. And I mean, it, it was this kind of the same thing, but a little different at Amazon. Um, Amazon has like 20 design systems. And when yeah. I tell people that, they're like, why? That doesn't make any sense. I'm like, well, actually it does. Why would the person that's standing in a factory scanning a box that's about to get shipped out to a customer use the same UI on that little device as somebody using Twitch, you know, or the the person shopping on Amazon.com or, you know, like, or using Amazon video. Like, these are all very, very different products. I completely see your point, right? This idea that is thinking about even like beyond screens, right? Like, what does the design system for Alexa look like? And I think that, that that's where like this conversation starts to get, to get really crazy and really interesting, right? Is if we're talking about this just creation of this systematic approach, you start to to take <laughs> you know, maybe even one more meta level attached to to your already kind of meta design system concept is this idea of a philosophy, very much like how, you know, agile is this philosophy that permeates our software development life cycles, thinking about design systems permeating this collaboration process that is attached to to that software development cycle. It's it's an interesting thing to think about. And I've pulled on this thread a handful of times, but I've never really had like the conversation about it. Is is design systems a practical implementation or is it this philosophy that then has all of these different ways of implementing this philosophy based on a, a more product-centric approach? I love that you said that because that, that's been sort of a slightly controversial thing I've been talking about recently is design systems are not a thing. And I know some people will be like, wait, what? Why would you say that? (laughs) But it's really, in my eyes, more of a methodology or a process or like even a way of thinking about, you know, shipping products. And, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, I built a design system. And it's like, what does that really mean? Yeah. No, you probably you probably already had a design system, but it maybe just wasn't like you know, as, as clearly implemented as you, you have it now or something. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's still difficult to describe. And there's a lot of like kind of nascent thinking that, that I really want to dive more deeply into on this topic, because I think that, that much like it was very difficult to describe, like what is agile a decade ago, you know, what is the design system is I think equally entering that sort of zeitgeist of our, our community right now, because there are so many different ways of defining it. And, you know, you look at graphs of Venn diagrams and bubbles and all this other stuff like that, that that all are making this attempt to describe this really complex thing. And I've definitely settled on the idea of, of and it sounds like you have too, and that's awesome, by the way, uh, that there is like this this broader concept at play here. And we're all just talking about ways of implementing that broader way of thinking. Right. Like there's obviously the way we move forward in the future, but I even think to the past, like, design systems for NASA, they weren't building CSS components back then. In this, right, right. You know? And so they're, they're always going to, the form that they take are always going to change and evolve. I mean, I think web is going to be around a long time. So that's always going to be a thing that we talk about and think about. But it's really this broader way of, of thinking and approaching building experiences for users. Yeah, very well said. So I, I know you've also been working on on this design token community group, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that because I think that this is a, a really interesting sort of of new focus that has gained this you know following through through a lot of the work you've done, and now leading this community. I want to hear a little bit more about what you're doing there. Yeah, so design tokens definitely are kind of the new hotness right now. It seems that everybody's trying to figure out and. There's a lot of amazing design tools that are starting to implement them, which I think is fantastic. 
Um, I think the problem is that, like, I think a lot of people are a little confused about, like, well, what is the right way to implement this into my tool? Um, you know, and is there like a standard approach that we could do this? Is there an API? Like, you know, mm -hmm. and, and everybody's just kind of mostly followed like what Salesforce did or, you know, um, are trying to like implement their own way of doing things. But it just seemed like it made sense. Like if we're really going to be doing this in our design systems to have some sort of standards around this. And when I talk about standards, I don't mean like picking what the values for your tokens will be or even picking what the names of your tokens will be, because those are very opinionated things that are always going to change depending on your organization. But mm -hmm. it's really more on like, you know, if you're trying to get Figma to talk to XML or you're trying to get Envision's DSM to talk to this or you're trying to get Adobe, you know, like all these different products that are out there. Like, is there a way we can standardize that so that people aren't walled into systems and they can like change and move to different tools and things continue to work as they should? Right. So you're looking at like an unopinionated structure of an implementation um, and a, a lot less of, of like an actual opinionated implementation. So it's all about like, how do I define the structure of what a design token should should look like rather than what the token is itself? And then, so there was, there was kind of already like people interested in this, like um, James Nash kind of did his own take on what he thought would be design token standards and some other people have kind of um, expressed interest in it. So then Kaleg, um who I, I worked with at Salesforce, um, and he contributed to Theo as well. He decided, you know, to just go ahead and make it a thing. Like, let's make this official. And so he signed up for it to be a W3C community group, which um, is different from a working group because um, it's, you know, anybody can start a community group as long as it's around, like, um, you know, doing like having like clear goals on standardizing an implementation of something that's going to be in the interest of the W3C and design tokens aren't purely web related. So he was even unsure if it would count, but apparently it does because it, it still is impactful for the web. So um, he and I are the chairs and we're actually, we've been going through rounds of interviews with people to figure out who will be the editors because there's kind of different modules. There's the overall global format, but then there's mm -hmm. like the modules that break down into like color or spacing or um, motion guidelines, like things like that. And I will admit, I am not strong on API writing or anything like that. So my particular role on this is really interested in more of the community side of things, as well as creating it not to just be the standards documentation, but also a resource because I get asked so many times by people like, where do I even start? How do I talk about this to my boss and explain what it is? Like, how do I put this into my product? And people have written medium articles and done talks, but there's not really a go-to place um, to, totally. to find out even like, where do I even get started? And so that's going to be my, my contribution to the community group. Not necessarily say I'm going to like create everything because it's a lot of work, but um, there's a bunch of people that have already volunteered to help. And so just kind of like pushing that forward and making it a really valuable resource so people know like what the heck these things even are and how do you put it in your product and all that. No, and we'll totally, we'll, we'll put a link to the the working group in the, the show notes so that people can check it out. 
and then of course there's your your other big project uh that's just like you know this little side gig called clarity you know i i know that things are crazy with pandemic and all this other stuff like that so i i know you guys are doing the conference virtually this year you know how has that evolved and changed not not just relative to to the pandemic but you know as this community has gained steam you know what's some exciting new stuff that's happening there this is now year five which still blows my mind i think i only had ever intended to do one or two conference is a way of doing that like they they end up being these things that are a little bit addictive yeah and it's just been growing every year like it started around like 296 or something like that and now you know last year it was like 700 people um so just seeing like the hunger for this knowledge that people have as well as just being in the room with all these other people that are doing what you're doing and um it's just really exciting and i get a lot of energy from the room, just seeing everybody engaging and, and learning. And of course, there's the talks, but just even just being in that room with people is amazing. So this year's going to be interesting with the new approach that we have to take. Um, what I'm excited about is it means there's no borders to who can come mm-hmm. and there's no requirement to travel. So I'm hoping this means it will have a much um, more diverse range of people attending. Um, but, um, you know, I, I admit as a community person, I'm a little bummed that there won't be people to just grab and hug. <laughs> you know? I, I totally hear you. I go to a fair number of conferences every year and I've definitely been missing that that contact of, of like seeing those people that, you know, and love and care about um, in person. Like there is no way of really creating that uh, in a virtual conference environment yet. One thing I'm really excited about, which I guess this is kind of giving you a little sneak peek early, but I feel okay doing that. We don't want to just be a stream of talks because, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been sitting on a lot of um, online conferences recently and not to bash any of them, like they've all been pretty good for the most part, like maybe some little minor mishaps, but, you know, it's kind of demanding of people to have them sit like at their computer for like hours (laughs) for multiple (laughs) days. And so we were like, how can we make this more engaging? And so um, it's almost like, a TV production is the way we're thinking about it. Like, you know, what happens between the talks? What content do we serve then? And then, um, you know, are there things that are a bit more interactive? And so we're kind of thinking of it as more of a production rather than a conference right now. That's awesome. I'm I'm excited to see what it looks like. And Clarity Interdimensional Cable sounds amazing. So I'm I for one am very much looking forward to it. I can't wait to to see what it's all about this year. Well, hey, Gina, I just want to say thank you so much for being on today. Also, thank you for all the work you do in supporting this community. Um, It's much appreciated. I know that you've made a big impact on us and and the way that we think about design systems. And I just want to say, like, keep on being awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's all for today. We'd love to hear from you with questions, ideas for new episodes, beer recommendations, or comments. You can find us on Twitter at the DS Pod. Cheers, and thanks for listening to the Design Systems Podcast.